All right, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8, we'll be looking at that text together. I'm so glad you've chosen to join us. I looked around a little bit during the service and uh, see some guests here today. We're thankful you're here as well, and uh, we trust that God has led you to our church on this one occasion, and we're thankful that you're here, and we look forward to being able to study Scripture together and to be able to partake in the Lord's table uh, together as well. I'm so glad for your singing as well. I love your singing. Uh, one of the verses uh, of a song stuck out to me this morning. Um, there's this a part of one of the choruses that says, uh, in these times we live in, we will praise the Lord. For some reason, uh, that stuck out to me as I was worshiping with you. We do live in very difficult days, very challenging days. It reminds me of what I've been reading and studying in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, uh, the psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The psalmist warns, he says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And so in light of the fact that our God sits today at the theological center of the universe, let's go to him in prayer and ask him to help us understand his word. Let's pray. Uh, God, we don't want to be listed among the people who plot and scheme about how we can break away from your control of us. Lord, we recognize and know your splendor. We know your strength. And today we know we'll learn even more about that in Romans. We are thankful that uh, as believers in Jesus Christ, we take refuge in you. And we would just pray, Lord, that you would bless now this time where we learn more about what it means to take refuge in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Romans chapter 8, we have already noted one very important thing. Uh, we learned that uh, there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, it's been a joyous privilege to consider that for some time. Uh, today in our sermon, uh, and actually for today and next Sunday, Lord willing, we will advance to another idea. The next idea is that we'll consider our future glory. So we're going to move from present uh, no condemnation to those who are in Jesus to the future glory of those who are in Christ Jesus. And what we're going to be looking at are verses 18 through 30. 
Verses 18 through 30 are usually divided up by most translations as two paragraphs. I actually think it's one large paragraph with a bunch of different parts to it. And I think that there are good reasons to think it's one paragraph. One of the reasons is because this whole section is framed by a key word or key concept that uh, is really gives you a clue to the content. In verse 18, if you're looking there in the verse, you'll see in the middle of the verse that uh, Paul says, he says, not worth comparing with the glory. So there it is in noun form, the key theme of this paragraph, the glory that is going to be revealed to us. But then you look at verse 30 and you go to the very end of the passage and you see the last word in most English translations is the verb glorify. And so this is the main idea of this one single paragraph from verses 18 through 30. We're looking at the future glory of those who are in Christ Jesus. In this paragraph, Paul calls us to consider the future glory that believers will experience. More specifically, I think, in this text, he begins with an opening proposal about the future glory. That proposal is very important. It's found in verse 18, just one verse. An opening proposal. I've heard some commentators call it an opening thesis. His main argument that he will make, verse 18. Off of that, Paul gives four types of support for that proposal. Okay, so uh, we're going to be looking at that a bit. And what you're going to find in verses 18 through 30 is that this is a deep text. This is a profound text that at times will stretch our minds and our capacities, even our imaginations a bit. We're going to learn some things today that will, uh, I think, floor you. You'll leave here thinking, whoa, what kind of world do we live in today? Having said that, although this is profound, he makes one singular point. It's like one point, one purpose for these verses. Amid all of the proposals and the support and the, the verses here, He has one intended purpose for these verses in our lives. And it is this. Everything that Paul writes in this passage is to encourage and strengthen us to endure the sufferings and difficulties and challenges of our life. Okay, So this is going to be a joyous reflection for these at least two weeks. We'll see how today goes. Uh, this could be a joyous reflection because Paul is intending to encourage and strengthen us to endure. The sufferings and the challenges of our life will eventually give way to the overwhelming, awesome glory of God that we will experience. Having said that, I want to start with the proposal then. The proposal. So I've got two points today in the sermon. Verse 18 is that opening or initial proposal. Look at it there in your Bible. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is his thesis. This is his main argument. Paul's proposal involves two realities. 
Uh, verse 18, two realities, two concepts, two topics. They are present sufferings and future glory. Now, before we look at what he says about those two things, I think it's good to try to see if we can define what they are. First, sufferings. He actually calls them the sufferings of this present time. You might think the sufferings in this time that we live in today. The sufferings of this present time include famine, sickness, disease, earthquake, floods, fires, and death. This word for suffering includes the persecutions, in my opinion, includes the persecutions that believers face for the profession of faith in Jesus Christ. You call it persecutions, call it sufferings, afflictions. It includes that, but I think it would also include the negative effects of sin on the world and on our bodies. The negative effects of sin that produce things like sickness, cancers of all sorts, arthritis, pain, death, watching our loved ones suffer, relational strains, and betrayals. I think it includes those things. Those are the sufferings of this present time. Well, the other topic is glory, future glory. John Stott says glory is the unutterable splendor of God, eternal, immortal, incorruptible. And that is true, but as we keep reading in this passage, we'll see that Paul says more about this glory in verse 18. Specifically, he wants us to consider the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Uh, Now, there are different ways to translate the last part of verse 18, the glory that's going to be revealed, and I'm especially interested in the word to, to us. I think the best way of translating this might be the glory that is to be revealed in us. I agree with what, what one man said here. He said the term translated in here implies motion toward an object from the outside that then takes the motion into the object. So, well, that sounds really complicated. It's been a hard week, hard day. Well, I got an extra hour of sleep, but you know, what do you mean by this? When he talks about the glory that's going to be revealed, I think he's talking about like a glory that's coming from outside, it's coming to us, and then it's inside of us. This is the point. This is not just something we will see in heaven, right? And we will see glory, right? Lord willing, all around us, glory. But it is something that will come to us and enter into us. I think he's describing the future glorification of our bodies. Paul's talking about the glory of God that we experience and that transforms us at our glorification. Now this uh, glory uh, involves the healing of our physical bodies from all of the symptoms of death and disease But it also involves the complete and utter eradication of our sin natures. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. That's the glory that's going to be revealed in us. 
Now, some of you, brothers and sisters, have seen your most beloved partner or child or parent suffer under physical affliction. I know this because I've been there with some of you. You've seen them struggle physically. In some cases, you've seen their limbs shrink, fail, shrivel. You've seen their mental capacities slip away until they couldn't function at all. Perhaps you saw their heart fail with heart disease, liver disease. Maybe you saw their lungs fail. Well, I want to assure you, brothers and sisters, if your spouse or your child or your parent knew Jesus, those pains and struggles on their deathbed were birth pains. They were birth pains. Yes, he or she went through the valley of the shadow of death. But they awoke in the presence of Jesus. And they will emerge from the grave one day at his return with power. They will arise healthy, pure. One day you will see them again and uh, it's my personal opinion that you will be stunned by their strength and their beauty. But there's one more thing to say in this passage. Paul says that our present sufferings are not even worthy to be compared with this future glory. I love this verse, right? Um, I like the image uh, of one commentator and how he describes this. I, I couldn't do it any better. Sometimes you have to borrow brains. You understand that? Uh, so I'm borrowing brains. Doug Moo on Romans is great. I mean, it's just this massive commentary on the book. Doug Moo uh, calls us to consider these two things, present sufferings and afflictions, and future glory as if they were on a scale. You know one of those old scales of balance? You put weight on one side, you put weight on the other side to see which one lasts. He says it this way. He says, we must, Paul suggests, weigh suffering in the balance with the glory that is in the final state of every believer. And so weighty, so transcendently wonderful is this glory that suffering flies into the air as if it had no weight at all. I like that. Can you imagine that? Like a, a one pound weight on one side and then you drop a skyscraper on the other. It's like, pew! He didn't have the sound effects, Doug Moo. What's the comparison? All of the pain, all of the trials, all of the difficulty, all of the suffering, all of the betrayal will be like nothing when we experience the overwhelming glory of God in heaven. We've been reading about it. We've been reading about it in 2 Corinthians. 
Paul describes it there. Here, it's his whole initial proposal. Now, this verse flies in the face of prosperity gospel that's consumed with telling us that God will always reward believers in this life for their obedience. It's our best life now. The reality is, however, the reality is we will all suffer and experience pain in this world. We will experience things like funerals. And uh, what can maintain us at a funeral? Or as we consider our own grave, and I think this text answers it, that the thing that maintains us is future glory. Future glory. All of the pain, all of the sufferings will fade into nothing when the radiant splendor of our great God transfigures us, surrounds us. Now, I want to move to the second point, and uh, for sake of time uh, this morning, uh, we are not going to be able to consider uh, all of what I had imagined, but we're going to look at the first way that Paul supports this, and this is uh, just an awesome passage, uh, one that I've enjoyed for, for many years. After Paul's initial proposal about suffering and glory, he offers support for it. Now, the support is threefold, and you can find it. I'm not the first to create this, but perhaps you've even heard this before. You can find his threefold support if you look for the word groan or groanings. Because I don't know if you mark in your Bible, you might consider uh, marking these, these things uh, as I think he's got three ways to support his argument, at least initially here. In Romans eight nineteen through 20, he has creation personified groaning and longing for future glory. Then he advances in verses 23 through 25, and he says, And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly, longing. So not only is creation groaning for future glory, so too we believers are. And then in verses 26 through 30, he talks about the way the Godhead responds to all of this. And in that description, in verses 26 and 27, he has the Holy Spirit groaning for us with unutterable groans. Okay, now, again, we're not going to look at all of these. I think actually today we're just going to look at the first one. And then we'll pick it up here next week. We're going to look at Paul's first argument where he talks about the created order. Okay, and so uh, look with me down in your Bibles at verses 19 through 22. I want to read them with you and this will be our final meditation before the Lord's table. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Okay, so we're not the only ones 
experiencing the pains of childbirth. In this passage, Paul talks about it being creation. Now, in verses 19 through 22, if you notice at the beginning of every one of those verses, he mentions the creation, the creation, the creation, and then verse 22, the whole creation, to, to help us see what his main point is here. The first reason for Paul's conviction that future glory is far greater than present suffering is that the whole created order longs for this glory. This thing that we're having a hard time imagining, this thing that's going to come to us, in us, and change us. He says here, all creation is looking forward to that day when believers get it. But we've got to stop and ask some questions here. First, what is the creation that Paul is talking about here? And um, again, I'll, I'll borrow brains. This time from C.E.B. Cranfield. Okay, Cranfield wrote a commentary on Romans, and he went throughout the history of the interpretation of the word creation. He says throughout the history of interpretation, this word has been taken eight different ways. And you got him there behind you. Uh, Is creation mankind and angels like Origen said? Or all mankind like Augustine? Or unbelieving mankind like Schlatter? Or believers only? Or angels only? Or subhuman nature with angels? Or subhuman natures in mankind? Or subhuman nature? It's a lot of views, right? There'll be a test next week, by the way. What is creation? Well, I would say this. I would say it excludes Satan, demons, and unbelievers because none of them are longing for what this text talks about. Satan's not, you know, today, wherever he is, longing like, I just can't wait until the sons of God are revealed in power. Demons don't think that way either. I don't think unbelievers do. This doesn't talk here in this passage about angels because they were not subjected to vanity or futility. Instead, I would say it this way, okay? Creation is likely a reference to all animate and inanimate inanimate creation. When I practiced that this morning, I got it right. All animals... And all material things. In other words, all animal life. Lions. Zebras. Donkeys. Bears, birds, amphibians, reptiles, fish. And all matter. Stars. Oceans. Mountains. Rocks. Stones. Clouds, trees, grass, plants. All animals and all matter are personified by Paul and he has them groaning for something in this text. This is a a kind of a C.S. Lewis sort of thing, right? With the trees being alive. And groaning. Remember this, the scriptures do say it at other place, if the disciples were to remain silent, what would shout praise out to God? The stones would cry out. Here he personifies it. All animate and inanimate creation are looking for something, but what? 
Well, that's revealed in verse 19. What is all animal and matter looking for? They're groaning for the future revealing of the sons of God. That is, they want the followers of Jesus to be revealed in all the future glory that will be theirs when Jesus returns and they're glorified. Okay, now, there's an obvious question you should ask at this point, but we're going to push it off for a little while. And I want to point out to you a few other important things about creation in this text. I would say there are three ways that Paul describes creation in this text. First, creation is entangled. In verse 20, Paul says that creation was subjected to futility. That is, God subjected the created order to futility. The word futility means emptiness or inability. I think it's likely a word that Paul draws from his Bible, from the Old Testament Scriptures, It's a word that's found in the second verse of the book of Ecclesiastes. And then 38 more times throughout that book. It's the word vanity of vanity. All is vanity, says the preacher. Right? So this Old Testament book, the preacher keeps describing life as emptiness and utter futility without God. But here in this text, Paul suggests that God subjected all animate and inanimate creation to emptiness and futility. Now, when do you think Paul did that? Or I should say God. When do you think God did that? When was all creation subjected to futility? And I think the answer is the curse in the garden. You remember when God said, cursed is the ground because of you. We preached you this years ago in Genesis and we, we asked, what, what did the ground do? Regardless, this is the curse uh, that God placed upon the created order. And at this point in Romans, we learn that creation is suffering under a curse, unable to fulfill the purpose and the goal of its creation. That is futility. And it's this futility uh, that describes creation's ineffectiveness to redound to God's glory in an unhindered ways they, the way they long to. Let me give an illustration. Now, I, I paused to do this. I went back and forth this morning. I thought, ah. let me just, I, I got to put a disclaimer on it. First of all, I am not a small engine guy, okay? But I know some of you are, and that's why I'm nervous about this. But imagine that your lawnmower is barely working. It doesn't start, or when it starts, it sputters and stops any time it hits more than a few blades of grass. Okay. Now, my father taught me years ago as a boy that when a small engine runs like this, you need to check a few different things. You need to check, one, gas, you know, which has been my problem, unfortunately, many times. Gas, spark, he said compression and air, there's more than that. Confront me, not my father. I'm sure the mistake is with me. I'm confident he still remains disappointed in my knowledge of small engines. But anyway. (laughs) Regardless. If the engine isn't getting gas or has no spark, it won't start. If the engine isn't getting air, then it will sputter, fail, and never run how it should. That's how it is with creation. Creation sputters and fails. It's under the curse. But then Paul says, 
uh, after that, that this curse was brought on creation, not willingly. Did you see that in your Bible? Not willingly. It means, uh, Paul's picture here is of creation as an innocent bystander, caught up in the, the transgressions of Adam and Eve. So that's why I use this point, this first point to describe creation. Creation is entangled. The cords of the curse of original sin have wrapped themselves around animals and trees and plants and planets so that they're bogged down and bound up. They're not able to glorify God the way they long to. But then he gives a second and third description of creation here that I think is also important. Creation is eager and hopeful. Okay, well, wait a second. If creation is subjected to futility, why does this text say they're eager and hopeful? Well, first he says, uh, he uses the words eager longing to describe creation. These words uh, are used in other passages, uh, like Philippians 1. Well, that's actually the only other passage, Philippians 1.20. And it's used there of the imagery of craning your neck to look at something that's coming. It's a Pauline word not used in other Christian sources, secular sources outside of this. It speaks of waiting with hope or hopeful anxiety. It's, uh, some of the translations say creation is on tiptoe. Looking, waiting, they're hopeful. As a matter of fact, Paul makes it clear, I think, at the end of verse 20, when you got these last little words, in hope, I take them with verse 21. What, what's the hope here? It's a hope that not necessarily God has, although I do believe he believes in this. It's not a hope of believers, it's a hope that creation has. So creation is entangled, but they're hopeful, longing for the day when the future glory of God will be revealed in believers. But again, now this is a question we suppressed earlier. Why would creation long for that day? I said, like, we, we've gone through it. We said, okay, they really can't wait till the day when the sons of God will be revealed in all their glory in heaven. And everyone sees it. Now, why would creation want that? Well, that's what verse 21 is about. Creation has hope that it too will be set free from its own bondage and corruption when the sons of God are revealed in all their glory. Later in the next verse, we learn that creation is experiencing the pains of childbirth. They they are suffering, but with anticipation of better days. In other words, they are longing for enhanced abilities to burst forth in unhindered productivity and power for the glory of their creator. Uh, We like to sing the song, Do You Feel the World is Broken? Remember the song? And what's the answer? It is. It is. The earth and the universe are broken. They're not able to function the way God originally ordained, and they're eagerly looking for it. Now, let's have a private conversation. Hopefully none of creation hears Do you think they're going to get it? Will creation get that? Well, I'd love to talk about that in full detail. Believe me, I would love to, but I can't. It involves a little bit about what you think about the future of the created order and the new heavens and the new earth, but 
I would just say this. Creation, I believe, does enjoy a time in the future when it will again thrive and produce and redound to God's glory in a thousand-year kingdom called the Millennial Kingdom. A time when crops will produce like they did before sin. When the reaper follows right on the hills of the planter. Remember that? Because the crop is so robust. Plant, seed, boom, crop, reap. Do it again. A time where creation will strive and thrive like its original performance. That's Paul's first argument here about creation. They're longing for the day when the true sons of God will be revealed. As we close, I think in this passage and the next, Paul is answering an important question for us. This has all been about creation. We're going to leave here today forever changed, thinking about creation, groaning and waiting for the future glory of believers in the hope that they too can glorify God. However, it's very practical. The question this text answers is, is it worth it? Is it worth it for Christians to endure all of the afflictions, all of the betrayals, all of the persecutions, all of the sufferings along the journey of life, the way to glory? Paul's answer to that question, is it worth it, is yes. Future glory is so amazing, so unimaginable in its splendors and effects, that it will make all of what we experience that is a result of sin, my sin or others, make all of that feel so light in the future. Some of you have experienced so much. So much pain. So much hurt. So much betrayal. Future glory will be so much greater than that. One day, and it's hard for us to believe this right, one day, all of this present suffering, it's going to fly away. It's going to be gone. You have my word on it. But you have something even more valuable than my word. You have God's word on it. It's going to be better and greater. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and prepare ourselves for the Lord's table.